This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Master. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Extra. It's our weekly podcast featuring a favorite conversation from our week and our daily radio show. Well, this week, we've got the president of the Rockefeller Foundation, Rajiv Shah, on disrupting the inequities widened by the pandemic. The foundation pledged a billion dollars this week to help address the COVID-19 pandemic, expanding access to testing and vaccines globally, and also providing the foundation to encourage billions of dollars worth of investments in green energy. It's really all about bringing power, electricity, to the more than 800 million people worldwide who do not have it. It's all about getting control of COVID and ending energy poverty. I talked with him from the Toronto Global Forum. Rockefeller actually has been around for 107 years as an institution and worked on the 1918 pandemic influenza. So uh, the the expertise and ability to contribute uh, significantly predates my tenure. But but we, in, in sort of the January, February, March timeframe, really reoriented about $100 million of support towards COVID-19 response and felt from that point on that this was going to be uh, longer and more challenging than most people had predicted in that moment. And I think we're seeing that bear out. I mean, most, most global pandemics of this scale do have two, three, four waves. Uh, I think in mm-hmm. particular, uh, it'll take a little bit longer than people realize to produce a a truly effective vaccine and get it distributed. The the global track record of broad distribution of a new vaccine is that it takes longer and requires much more effort than most people realize. So I'm uh, believing that 2021 is going to be a year continue to be defined by COVID-19. And in order for societies to really function effectively, They'll really have to understand how to combine traditional public health behaviors like wearing a mask and social distancing Mm -hmm. with a much, much, much more aggressive rapid testing protocol to enable critical institutions around the world, uh, certainly in the United States, to be functional through a pandemic threat. I do wonder, too, do you look a lot at what's going on in Asia, especially in China, that they have in many ways, I talked to somebody just this week, a big global real estate person, but who is very involved in Beijing and Shanghai. I mean, they're getting back to work. That's right. I mean, I mean, countries that have gotten the background transmission rate down to a very, very low rate because of intensive focused lockdown efforts. Uh, have been able to bounce back. And and while there are second, third, fourth waves in those places, that's true in New Zealand and South Korea and Australia, in Germany uh, and in China, they're able to manage through it much more carefully. I will say, as we've looked around the globe, the one core characteristic of being able to be open through second, third and fourth waves of infections is a very effective, very rapid testing regime in place. If everyone, you know, if you think about it, solving a pandemic is actually really easy. You find out who's contagious and you take them out of the chain of transmission. And that requires a data-driven response that starts with knowing who is contagious. In COVID-19, about 40 to 50% of the spread are people without symptoms. So countries that have had broad testing strategies very rapid 15, 20, 30 minute turnaround times on test results and a real capacity to take people who are positive, whether or not they have symptoms out of the chain of transmission uh, are now open for business and will be open for business in 2021. Countries that have not done that will continue to struggle. Yeah, it's amazing how kind of 
clear it is what the playbook is, but yet we continue to struggle with it. Listen, this is all so important, right, to getting our global economy back up and running. The theme of the forum this year is a resilient economy. And there's a lot that goes into creating a resilient economy, you know, obviously getting this health crisis under control. Um, you need to have a job. You need to have the right policies in place, the supportive policies. I want to get to an announcement that the Rockefeller Foundation just made that I think really gets into creating a longer term resilient economy for so many. Tell us a little bit about this $1 billion commitment that you guys just made. And it really is about disrupting the inequities that have been caused um, and really widened by the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, well, you said it uh, really effectively. That, that's exactly what, what we're trying to do. I mean, I think we look across the course of time tremendously for the path of human opportunity and human inequity going forward. You know, we, it's not like we haven't had big crises before. Right. Like depression, world wars, the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009. What we've learned from all of those is the path a society and an economy takes in the recovery from that crisis defines the type of nation and ultimately the type of global economy we have 10, 15 years out. If we recover the way we're currently poised to recover, which I'd say is slow, is focused on those with capital and not on those that depend on their labor to earn income, is uh, deepening the inequities that have already been illustrated by COVID-19, mm -hmm. then 10, 15 years from now, we're likely to have a world that's more vulnerable to climate change and that is much, much more unequal. And I can get into that. So in the context of that, we, we believe we have the ability to bring people together and reimagine new solutions to human inequity and economic development and green growth and we're committing a billion dollars towards that objective over the next few years. What's fascinating about it, and I think, I bet somebody's hearing that and they're like, what is it? Is it committed to healthcare? Is it education? It's about electricity. It's about power, right? Yeah, at its core, it is actually about accelerating the COVID-19 response in an equitable manner, and then ultimately ending what we call energy poverty. Uh, mm -hmm. The reason the acceleration of the COVID-19 response in an equitable manner matters so much is because community, the communities that have been hardest hit are lower income minority communities. There are 23 million jobless claims filed last week in the United States of America. America's six, 700 billionaires have made about six or $700 billion since COVID-19 hit, probably having the best year ever in terms of income and wealth growth for the very, very top. And, you know, that's the path we're on because society knows how to bail out capital markets. And frankly, we don't do such a good job of bailing out uh, working families and, and those who depend on their labor. And we're not against strong Fed action. In fact, we're supportive of strong economic interventions that support the capital markets. We just want to see it be more equitable and we want to see more people who have the ability to get green jobs, have the ability to build a new infrastructure for a modern green economy be a part of the solution. Talk to us about the solution. So, you know, I think, you know, power, electricity, it's something, you know, Raj, that we all take for granted, certainly in developed societies. And I don't think we think about, I mean, I was blown away by one of the numbers that your team shared with me about the amount of people, um, sustainable sources uh, that you guys want to bring to more than 800 million people in the world who now live without it, 800 million people. 
that's a huge part of our global society um, that are really left out. Tell us how you how you think you can do this. Well, I'm, I'm glad you highlight the number. I mean, people, you know, I've been working on global poverty issues in different capacities for, for two and a half decades. And the reality is uh, people always say, well, there's no single silver bullet to ending poverty and creating opportunity. And that's absolutely accurate. At the same time, uh, we know that the modern economy is increasingly digital and hyper-connected, and you cannot connect to that economy without electricity. So it should be shocking to people to know that 850 million people around the world live without access to 150 kilowatt hours of power a year. That means they don't have a light bulb on in their home for the course mm -hmm. of a year. Uh, it should be shocking that probably another billion and a half people uh, live in economies where the number one constraint to job growth and to small business starts is in fact access to uh, reliable power that can support businesses. You know, unreliable power that goes out every couple of hours. You can't start a business. You can't hire people. You can't invest in capital. And I've seen these communities. I've been, Rockefeller has been investing in them for more than a decade. We now have a set of solutions to this problem that are based on green technology, artificial intelligence, smart metering, new ways of bringing capital markets to the world's very poorest people. And there's no reason why 10 years from now we could not have eliminated energy poverty and brought one to two billion people into the modern global economy in a positive, hopeful way. That's what we're trying to do as, as part of the recovery from COVID-19. Raj, how do you do it? Because um, just this whole idea of, of kind of developing, you know, and bringing electricity to so many, so many people, a billion dollars, it's a large commitment. What needs to happen? And I'm assuming you've got to bring in other partners to make it happen. Well, you're uh, absolutely right. It's, it's first, it's inspired by the reality of science, technology, and innovation. We have always been an institution that believed if you worked extra hard to bring the scientific and technological frontier to the world's most vulnerable people, you mm -hmm. could reshape the nature of human opportunity. Uh, we did that 50, 60 years ago in creating something called a green revolution, where we helped uh, triple, quadruple crop yields in some of the hungriest parts of the world. Uh, today, a, a new green revolution would actually be recognizing that the billion people who live without meaningful access to power could simply benefit from new solar, battery, mini-grid, AI technologies that would allow them to connect and connect quickly. We've already served about 400,000 people in uh, Northeast India who are characterized by extreme poverty and with whom we've pioneered new solutions that can provide solar energy at, you know, somewhere around 20 to 25 cents a kilowatt hour. And right, you've seen price. it work, right? You've seen this work already. Oh, yeah, we've rolled out hundreds. We actually have a, a billion dollar joint venture with Tata Power in India, mm -hmm. we roll out 10,000 of these. Not only do they work technologically, they work uh, from a commercial perspective. The businesses, uh, the business we started with Tata Power should and will both sustain itself and frankly be profitable over time. And, uh, and most important to me is they work from a poverty reduction perspective. We study carefully the results of what we invest in. And mm -hmm. we know that families served by our solar mini grids in rural parts of India have doubled their incomes, have increased their employment of others, have been able to take farm output and sell it at better prices because the value addition they're able to do on farm is higher and are moving their communities out of poverty. I've seen it firsthand. 
we I mean, can it's, do this. It's life changing, right? I mean, this is, you know, this whole idea of like disrupting, we talk about disruption all the time, right? And disruptors. This is really about disrupting the inequities. This is how you do it. Yeah, I think people get stuck. They get stuck <laughs> on the idea that it has to be a sort of, uh, you know, either or that you, they, the yeah. eye is only so big, and and if and you got to take it from someone to to give it to people who are at the bottom, and that's not what we've observed. I mean, we've observed that there are ways to bring technology, science, and commercial markets to the world's bottom two billion people in a way that fundamentally disrupts the reality of human inequity. And the reason now is the time to do it is because this is the big disruption. This is the big dislocation. This mm -hmm. is the big crisis. And crisis has always presented opportunity in the, in the spirit of recovery. America had its strongest and most broadly shared economic period after World War II. And we could get into why. Uh, but if we're going to bring that mindset to the global economy in this moment, we have to think differently and we have to be more ambitious on behalf of those who are suffering. Now, that idea of disruption, I can't tell you how many times it has come up here at Bloomberg in my conversations on air over the last six, seven months that, yes, terrible crisis, and we wish it hadn't happened, and certainly the impact on so many, but it's it's causing people to increase their timetable um, to make changes and to figure out ways to do things better, and that sounds like this is an opportunity. What's the cost, though, of doing something like this and bringing, you know, 800 million people who are really kind of left out in this world right now, um, what's it cost to kind of try and bring them in? Yeah, so our estimates of the cost to specifically end energy poverty the way we're defining it is uh, roughly 20 to $30 billion a year over the course of a decade. Uh, that may sound like a lot, although when you actually look at how yeah. much we are spending dealing with the consequences of inequity in the current crisis, it's really a very, very small and very efficient commitment. Of that 20 to 30 billion on an annual basis, about half would be commercial investment or impact investment, and about half would be true uh, public subsidy or public investment uh, that goes alongside a number of other activities. The, if you ask that same question 10 years ago, or maybe 15 years ago, uh, I'd say 10, maybe five years ago, I'd say the answer to that question would have been hundreds of billions of dollars per year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the pathway to success would have been would have re fundamentally required like governments everywhere to start behaving better. Today, it's different. Today, you don't need that much capital. And because of the pace of technology and because we've proven that these business models can work on a commercial basis, you really don't need, although it'd be nice, but you really don't need every public energy utility around the world to start dramatically turning around its core performance. Uh, we work with utilities, we respect the mandates they have, uh, but this is a vision that is more disruptive than depending on just fixing the things that look broken to people. You know, it's interesting, Raj, I, I'm listening to you talk and you talk about the cost and I we um, had a story this week uh, based on an economist over at Citigroup who tallied up, and this is on a, a little bit of a different topic, but bias and the cost it is to our economy. And, and she, she tallied up, it's like $16 trillion. And I think about, all right, so we have this 20 to $30 billion year, a year cost, but you think about if you can give these people power and they can be part of our system, right? Contributors, they can become consumers. I mean, the economic impact is just kind of off the charts. 
Well, it's economic. It's also in the spirit of the work we do with really the world's most vulnerable people. It's right. also a, doing the right thing. It's a core concept around justice and, and moral, um, you know, and morality. I mean, I, I've been, it, it was just in November seeing some of the beneficiaries of our mini grid work in Northern India. And, you know, you meet, you meet, uh, I met a young girl who, you know, d- doesn't get to go to school, doesn't have to read at night because there's no lighting, you know, watch, walks outdoors to fetch water. And, you know, in, in the middle of the night, and you know that that leads to gender violence, sexual violence, a lack of education, and really no genuine sense of hopefulness for her future. And then we talked to her mother after the lights went on, you know, and after they became customers, paying customers right. of, a, of a new technologically advanced solar mini grid that was managed by remote artificial intelligence. And all of a sudden, the whole sense of human aspiration changes. You know, everyone has a mobile phone. Everybody sees what success can look like. And then you feel that hopefulness of my daughter has a chance. And it changes the nature of human security. It changes the nature of human vulnerability. And, uh, and it, it really is a, a strategy to lift up the whole concept of, of a green and global and inclusive recovery into a sort of something that means more about justice than just economics. No, and I, I totally agree. I do wonder, Raj, what's different this time around? Because, you know, the injustices, the inequalities, the inequities um, that have been laid bare again because of COVID-19 globally, they're not new. They have been around for years. You talked about how much, you know, your life's work has been on global poverty. The Rockefeller Foundation has been focused on it for a long time. What's different this time around that you think, as you said, we kind of have this unique opportunity for disruption. Yeah. What what makes you think it's different this time around? For I, lack I of a couple, better phrase. A couple of things are different. The first is the moment we're in is extremely dire. So for example, uh, the World Bank estimates that 425 million people around the world will be pushed back under an expanded definition of the poverty line. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen even during the global financial crisis. Uh, that didn't happen during the period of the Cold War. I mean, that, that sort of reversal of human progress is, uh, is extremely unique to this particular crisis at that scale. And for us to just sort of throw our hands up and say, okay, we're going to lose two and a half decades of human progress in making the world more just and creating more opportunity for families, uh, that would be a huge mistake. So I think the first big difference is just how significant the moment we find ourselves in. The second one is the race to save the climate, right? Right. And and if you just sort of say that, well, the bottom 2 billion people don't seem to use a lot of uh, intensive materials and therefore don't produce that much carbon, you're sort of missing the picture. 15 years from now, uh, these folks will either develop their economies based on, you know, Chinese investment in coal production, which is happening, you know, to the tune Mm -hmm. of 150 uh, gigawatts around the developing world. Or it'll be fundamentally a green and modern economy that's much, much less problematic for the global climate situation. And these two things go hand in hand. And, you know, if you're poor, if you're suffering, and if your choice is one or the other, you're going to take whatever makes sense in the moment. And if we don't make a more modern, more hopeful, more green solution, a strong equivalent option to what others are offering, we, we're not going to be successful at protecting our climate, which does present existential threats to all of us. 
So I think about all of the people who are listening to this um, and thinking about their role in all of this, whether they run a company, whether they run an institution, whether they're just one of the many, you know, billions uh, in our society. I mean, what would you say to them in terms of thinking about what you are setting out to do and the Rockefeller Foundation is setting to do? What is kind of all of our roles in this? Yeah, I would say everyone has a role. So, so you know, media, your, your sector has a role in bringing people to a broader vision of both what's necessary and what's possible and doing it quickly, in, in my humble opinion. Uh, I, think, I think the, the industrial and, and uh, business sector has a tremendous role to play especially for this particular example, the sort of energy and infrastructure community, uh, because if you run a large energy company, you should, you should have some awareness of this frontier and you should be able to dedicate resources to where your business touches on this frontier. I'd say if you're a young entrepreneur somewhere in the world, uh, I don't know what market you might be interested in, uh, but the idea that you can be part of a, of a truly green revolution for the world's poorest people that will help them move up the economic ladder and do so in a green manner is, is so rife with real opportunity, so rife with opportunity. I mean, I met entrepreneurs that were developing the AI platforms to remotely manage these mini grids. I met entrepreneurs who were designing new battery chemistries that were low cost and durable and work better in tropical climates. I could go on and on. I mean, people developing auto rickshaws that are electric based that would serve as sources of demand for this vision of the future. I, I mean, this is, this is what you should, my, my nine-year-old and my 11-year-old daughter yesterday told me, uh, I said, what do you want to do with your life? She said, I don't know if I can, but I want to solve climate change. And I was like, wow. <laughs> and then I said, you can, you can be part of it. Yeah, so right. I, I would say everyone can be part of it. Governments have a huge role to play. Right. Uh, frankly, both in getting out of the way and creating an environment that enables commercial enterprise to be successful here and in really committing itself to addressing inequity in the context of the COVID recovery and in, in a measurable and effective manner. And that's true, not just in India or Africa, but, but in the United States and everywhere. I'm glad you mentioned government's role, because I do wonder, I mean, we talk a lot about public-private partnerships, but you really do need that to get this done, right? And you do need some kind of cooperation here on a grand scale. Yeah, and you need government to set the right tone. So you yeah. know, I think there's, uh, like, for example, if in the United States, if, if our nation embarks on a multi-trillion dollar green infrastructure investment program to create jobs and support job creation through the COVID recovery, that sets a tone. And that tone, uh, in my view, should be extended globally and, and should be about using the COVID-19 crisis to build a global economy that is safe from a climate perspective and inclusive from a development perspective. And it's achievable. And what, what's so extraordinary is in normal times, you would say, gosh, that's a great idea, but you know, these are normal times and that's not how things work. But right. we're not in normal times. We're in extraordinary times. We've put trillions of dollars already into fiscal and monetary policy solutions to just deal with the immediate symptoms of the COVID-19 crisis, not even to think about the recovery. There's nothing normal about this moment. This right. is probably the best chance we'll ever have to rethink the global economy. All right, so let's go where we started just to wrap up our conversation. The theme of this event is all about economic resiliency. I mean, that's the end game in terms of what you're trying to do, you know, give people a better life, right? And, and really have kind of a future to look forward 
too. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think the basic idea that everyone should have, uh, you know, universal opportunity is an appropriate guidepost for shaping our future. And to do that in a manner that is green and protective of our climate is really the only way we could achieve that. Uh, and the great news is, you know, people have never been more innovative and more capable from the perspective of science and technology right. of influencing the world around them. Uh, and crisis has always asked us to reshape our societies. We just have to stand up and uh, really take advantage of this one. All right. Just I do have one last question. So five years, where do you think if all of this falls into place? in terms of your commitment and everybody else gets involved, what could this mean for these 800 million people or at least a portion of them? Yeah, I, I, I think you can see progress very, very quickly. Um, okay. you know, we, we, uh, what we've seen with our customers from these programs, uh, not just in India, but in Myanmar and Africa in parts of Puerto Rico uh, is, is the people react very quickly. Uh, you know, you start giving people access to modern economic infrastructure always on reliable, affordable electricity. And what do they do? They, they do things, they start businesses, they hire people that I met a carpenter who said, now that I know the power is gonna be on, I bought power tools, which makes sense. And now I have power right. tools, I can make more furniture and I'm hiring more people. It just happens naturally. So five years from now, I'd like to see two, 300 million of the, of the 800 million target have already moved uh, out of poverty or at least uh, close on that path. And in doing so, I hope that great movement creates the sort of positive feedback loop and inspiration to allow politicians, investors, leaders, and, and young people to say, hey, we can get all the way there together. That was the president of the Rockefeller Foundation, Dr. Rajiv Shah. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business Week Extra. Be sure to listen to Bloomberg Business Week Radio, airing live Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser, and this is Bloomberg.